0: Within our mandate, within our mandate, the ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro. And believe me, it will be enough.
1: Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard Mario Draghi speaking back in 2012 when he was president of the European Central Bank uttering one of the most famous phrases in EU history, a phrase credited with saving the euro. Fast forward to today, and Draghi is Italy's new Prime Minister, tasked once again with doing whatever it takes, this time to lead his country through the pandemic and into economic recovery. We'll talk more about Draghi and his likely impact on Italy and the EU in just a moment. And later in this episode, we'll debate the very serious question we posed last week: Is the EU funny?
2: I think it, a lot of it boils down to the fact that the EU isn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> it is a deeply boring procedural
1: set, um, setup, but therein lies the humour, in a way. I mean, the. But first, let's get to the podcast panel. So, a warm welcome to Matt Karnitschnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Guten Abend. Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. And it's a buonasera to our special guest this week, Jacopo Baragazzi, our senior EU reporter who's also here in Brussels. Hi, Jacopo. Ciao, buonasera. So great to have you with us and we have uh, called you in in large part because you know the new Italian Prime Minister pretty well, Mario Draghi, who is uh, taking over in a very broad-based government, former President of the European Central Bank, of course. Jacopo, tell us a bit about him. What kind of a person is he and you know, how did he kind of rise through the ranks to get to where he is today?
0: Mario Draghi is, first of all, somebody who is pretty used to take decisions on his own, is a man who was an orphan of both parents at the age of 16 and who had to become an adult pretty quickly. And so this has turned him into this pretty amazing figure in Italian politics because he's possibly the most political of all the technocrats. And the definition I heard today of the government that he has just formed is that is the first uh, government uh, in Europe that is uh, a technocratic populist government, a kind of experiment of a mixed <laughs> what mi- does that mean? Meaning that is uh, a mixture between uh, some technocratic figures, experts uh, who come from uh, the academia or from uh, enterprises, and figures uh, from some of the populist uh, slash far right parties. Uh, so it's this particular kind of mixture. We have a government where we have members of the far right League, La Lega, and then we still have the last survivors of the former anti-establishment movement, the Five Stars. Then we have the more institutional Democratic Party and, again, figures coming from different experiences outside of politics. Mm. And so, once again, it seems that... Italy proposes itself as a kind of political laboratory.
1: Mm, yeah, and we'll see how the experiment plays out.
0: Can you place him on the political
1: spectrum? I mean, do we know, as you say, he obviously has good political instincts. He's used to working inside politics, but he made his career as, well, ultimately as a
0: central banker. Can we say, you know, where he stands politically? Once in an interview a few years ago, he said that he's a, uh, a liberal socialist. Those uh, who met him when he was studying uh, at MIT, there was recently an interview with uh, a fellow guy who met him while he was studying, and he said he had the impression that he was not at all a left-winger. But uh, Mario Draghi was uh, educated by the Jesuits. He's a church-goer, so he's more a a kind of a moderate. In the same interview, he said that that, uh, his political views don't match with any kind of radicalism. But again, at the same time, today in his speech in the Senate, one of the few quotes that was there was a quote from the Pope. Mm. Jacopo, I think uh, you've spoken to Draghi on at
1: least one occasion. I believe you met him on the Tube, right? Yeah. Tell, tell, us, tell, tell us what <laughs> happened there and
0: what, what's he like as a person, you know, when you engage with him. He's, uh, he was uh, um, a managing director at Goldman Sachs. But uh, Draghi has this personal style, always very humble. There have been pictures in newspapers in the last years of him going to the supermarket, for example, and there is a picture of him checking the prices. And uh, <laughs> and <laughs> so when I met him, first of all, it was, was weird to see such a high-ranking figure of Goldman Sachs in the tube, mm. and secondly, he was there as usual without an overcoat because Draghi. Usually doesn't wear overcoats. But since that I I regularly met him, at a certain point I asked him whether he wanted to go on air. I used to be a a producer at the CNBC Europe, whether he wanted to come on air. And he was very politely rejecting my request. I also got in touch with him when I was chasing his undergraduate thesis because uh, he wrote a thesis where it was before the euro. But it was a thesis where basically, as far as we know, because nobody actually got access to the thesis. He was describing uh, setting up a single currency as something crazy. And so since I've been chasing uh, this thesis for a long time, at a certain point, I wrote him a letter. And I asked him, please, I know that one of the few copies of the thesis is uh, in your office. Can you give it to me? And uh, very politely, once again, he rejected my request.
1: (laughs) Right. Okay, well, sounds like he's good at at saying no, but saying no politely, um, which I guess comes in handy in politics. Matt, you also met him uh, during his time as European Central Bank president, which is, of course, where he really made his name with the Whatever It Takes speech, which was credited with a key role in in saving the euro. Uh, What did you make of him? What did you make of his tenure as ECB president?
3: Well, I'm also a Jesuit, as you know. So i share this. uh, Also very moderate. uh, Yes, absolutely. No, all kidding aside, I thought that he came in with a lot of expectations and also a lot of doubts about, whether an Italian was the right person to lead the ECB at a time that the euro faced an existential crisis. Some people will remember that, especially in Germany, there was a lot of concern about putting an Italian in charge of the central bank. And the uh, built newspaper here, the tabloid, famously ran a a campaign initially against him and then kind of for him. And they pictured him in one of these (laughs) pointy Prussian helmets at one point from World War I saying, you know, that he was going to be a strict anti-inflation hawk. And I think he eventually lived up to all of those expectations only to disappoint the Germans in the end, because of course, interest rates during his time came way down, meaning that German savers basically earned nothing on their savings and then he had the tabloids at his at his throat once again but i think the most important relationship he forged during that period of of crisis really was with with angela merkel and their collaboration i think was much closer than we know than is really on on the record You know, I I remember hearing from sources at the time that he would regularly come to Berlin and uh, meet with her privately, have dinner with her. He definitely had her backing for the uh, whatever-it-takes speech because for any ECB president, and I think especially for for Draghi, you know, having the backing of uh, the German government was absolutely essential and, and, and the backing of the German public as well. So I think that will probably help him a lot in the coming months and years, even after Angela Merkel is gone because uh, he is somebody who is very much trusted by the German political establishment.
4: So I wanted to jump in on that because I I have two questions, actually, for Jacopo and and Matt. You know, one, how does Draghi becoming the Italian prime minister, how is that going to play into the dynamic between Macron and Merkel on the one hand? And the other, you know, the only time you really hear about Italian politics in France is when uh, sort of political commentators say, Italy is a sort of an experience lab, and everything that happens in Italy when it comes to politics happens ahead of time and then comes to France. And so I wonder if, you know, Jacopo, who, if you had to think of someone, who do you think like would be the equivalent in France of Draghi?
0: First of all, on the way it will play with Merkel and Macron, here there is a point that Draghi will have to show as first thing, that he's on top of things. It is not enough to be Mario Draghi, to be Definitely authoritative. So here there is a a challenge, which is the challenge between the Swamp and the Giant. The Swamp of Italian politics and the Giant Mario Draghi. Who will win? Will the Swamp swallow Mario Draghi or will the Giant dry up the Swamp? The answer to this question will determine much of his impact on the European Council. Second point of the European Council, the point uh, Mario Draghi has something in common with Giuseppe Conte, which is, uh, I don't like to use the word orphan because of what I said before, that he was an orphan for real, but he's a political orphan like Giuseppe Conte was. He doesn't have a political party. And uh, as we know in the European Council, uh, often uh, what is crucial are the pre-meetings of the political families and Macron as Liberals, Merkel as the Christian Democrats. Draghi, exactly like Conte, completely different kind of character, different kind of experience, but also Draghi doesn't have a political family to join ahead of the European Council. In terms of France, I see the other way around, meaning that there are expectations that Draghi could, in a different way, in a different kind of political system, that uh, Draghi could play a similar role compared to what Macron played. Meaning that if the second scenario is the one that will prevail, that uh, the giant will dry up the swamp, then he will be able to trigger a big bang of the political system.
4: So you think that he could actually be, Draghi could be the Macron
0: of Italy, and it's not the other way around? This is an expectation I heard. I'm not saying it will be like that.
4: So do you expect Macron and Draghi to get along well? Because, you know, both of them, I mean, have a, quite a bit of a financial background. As as you know, Macron started out his career as a banker at Rothschild. Then he became, you know, after going through the Élysée for a bit as a as a, an advisor, he became finance minister. Is that something they can see eye to eye on?
0: Not just that, but... He likes uh, the kind of very deep, uh, also philosophical, if you want, discussions.
4: So interestingly, uh, just on the French side, uh, we saw today after, so we're recording this on on Wednesday evening, and Mario Draghi gave this big speech today in Italy, and the French junior minister for European affairs, Clément Beaune, tweeted one of the uh, quotes from Mario Draghi's uh, speech, and he quoted, There is no sovereignty in solitude. And I thought that was very interesting that this was what he zeroed in on.
0: In the line you just quoted, uh, there is something else that he said uh, a few minutes earlier, which was uh, who is part of his government has to declare the euro is irreversible. So with that line, he basically told uh, Matteo Salvini and the League, if you want to be with me, either you shut up Or you agree that the euro is irreversible, because uh, even yesterday, Matteo Salvini refused to say that the euro is irreversible. I would just
3: add that I think Draghi in the European framework will have a kind of unique position because of his reputation. He almost transcends the sort of daily political fray in a way that I think no other leader except for Merkel really does. And so I think, you know, he is somebody who will have, despite the fact that he doesn't have a political family and despite the fact that he hasn't been directly elected, will have more Influenced than many other European leaders in the EU.
0: I agree entirely.
1: You've got gravitas, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that kind of gravitas. Gravitas. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's, a, it's a Latin word. Oh, okay. Thanks,
1: <laughs> it, Every Every week is an education here, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Reem, uh, Matt and Jacopo, thanks for now very much. We'll be back later with uh, recommendations, reading, listening, watching, things to get you through lockdown. That's coming up later. We'll be back right after this.
5: In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for policy professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? EU Confidential listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.eu with the code CONFIDENTIAL. Again, that's pro at politico.eu.
1: Now, as we all know, these are very serious times, which makes humour... All the more important. After all, when could it be more vital than right now to have something to distract us and make us laugh? The EU may not seem an obvious source of hilarity, but one of the things I found surprising when I first moved to Brussels is that there is actually quite a thriving EU comedy scene. There are parody Twitter accounts, there are satirical blogs, and even live comedy shows all devoted to poking fun at the EU. So to explore that scene a bit more and find out what makes the EU funny, we assembled an all-star cast of comic talents, starting with Duncan Lumsden, one of the founding members of the satirical blog The Burley Monster. That's a play on words on the commission's Burleymont headquarters for people who don't speak EU. Duncan's a journalist who first came to Brussels in 1998.
2: And then through a couple of friends who set up uh, a magazine, that was called The Sprout. Me and a couple of others, we were writing some of the sillier stuff for that magazine. And when it folded, eventually, the three of us who were regular silly contributors got together in, in Kitty O'Shea's and, and sort of thought, well, where are we going to put our silly ideas now? And the, the most tech forward of us, which were, was not me, I hasten to add just set up a blog and we just started writing silly stuff about, about the EU that we had been writing for The Sprout. Spoof stories, parodies, occasionally just, just slightly serious stuff, but worded in a silly way, which is what we're still doing now with The bird Monster.
1: Then we brought in Kelly Agathos, who quit her job at the European Commission to become a professional improv comedian in Brussels.
5: This year, I had two shows in production, uh, one called everything you always wanted to know about the EU but were too afraid to ask and in that I was going to get my improv actors who have nothing to do with the bubble to read out things like special chefs, comatology, gris and then improvise a scene based on whatever it is they understood so maybe with special chefs they literally do a scene where they're chefs at a restaurant Uh, and Mm -hmm. then be told by the public what special chefs actually is and then have to redo the scene with the actual facts
1: Can you just explain for our listeners who are not not a bubble residence, what a special chef is? Yes,
5: yeah, sure. It's when a member of cabinet goes to meet with a sec gen on a specific topic inside the European Commission. Okay, I the also- Secretary
1: General. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it, yeah, I hope I mean, that's the whole world. It's a whole world. It's a whole, world. yes, there the are all show.
5: these, and that's why I thought, well, there's so much jargon that even I, who spent, you know, nine years in the bubble, would be asking basic questions or um, going, uh huh, yeah, as if I understood, uh, so that mm. I seemed <laughs> smarter than I actually was.
1: And we also invited Politico's own Paul Dallison, author of our weekly declassified column.
6: In my pre Brussels life, I used to write about music and various other parts of the art. So that's where I kind of, I always like the writing that has a more of an amusing edge to it. So then when I moved to Brussels in 2009 to work for European voice at the back of the newspaper every week was a a page called nous, which had kind of uh, not always amusing things, but also amusing things as part of it. And I started writing some of that fairly soon afterwards. And then when we morphed into Politico, it kind of carried on really. Uh, I was working alongside our uh, former colleagues, Craig Winneker and Ryan Heath, writing some of the more lighter stuff. And then when they both left, it landed on my lap. It was like, OK, if we need some funny stuff, then Paul can
2: do it.
1: Duncan, let me come back to you and ask you, I mean, what are the funny things about the EU? What do you find yourself going back to or what's what's the kind of richest source of material, do you think? What makes the EU funny? I think
2: it, a lot of it boils down to the fact that the EU isn't funny. <laughs> it is a deeply boring procedural st- um, setup, but therein lies the humour in a way. I mean, the
1: yes. Uh,
2: yes. years ago in a previous life, I was working for a newswire and we, we ran a story. We had an interview with, with the then Regional Affairs Commissioner Michel Barnier, a name you might recognise. And it was picked up by an Australian newswire who ran it under their rubric, Boring But Important. <laughs> and that basically tells you everything about what the bubble is like and what EU news is like. In the boringness, there's the humour. I was joking with one of the contributors to the Berla Monster website that there are only three or four jokes to be had. Arcane procedures, pompous and irrelevant institutions, mm-hmm. pompous irrelevant people, mm-hmm. and then the things that the institutions and people say or, or do or in, in many instances don't do because Mm -hmm. of the lack of capacity and competence.
6: Yeah, and I think that you don't, therefore, you don't attract quite so many larger-than-life characters. You know, the easy things to poke fun at, your Trumps, your Boris johnsons You tend not to get those characters here. So therefore, as Duncan says, you have to kind of dig a little deeper to find the humour. And often maybe it's not funny, maybe it's just absurd.
2: In terms of rich sources of material, as characters or caricatures in and of themselves, it's really only been Juncker. Mm. In more than twenty years, from <laughs> from two Prodi's, two Barroso's and Juncker, and now now von der Leyen. In all those commissions, it's really only Juncker who stands out as as any kind of character, caricature, personality who who is potentially funny in and of him or herself. And you know, with him and his team and the uh, the great Martin Selmayr, they were able to strike backroom deals and get stuff done. So that I'm sure that made him feel a lot more comfortable going up front and being himself, and if that meant horsing around a bit and and saying hello dictator to Auburn or, or you know, imposing his own tie on Tsipras, you know those kind of little elements he was he felt enabled to do because. He was able to back it up with what he was doing professionally.
1: Mm. Anybody else got any examples of people who you thought that this is a this is a good character? I can work with this person, Kelly. When you, you know, in in the course of your career, maybe in the Parliament, was there anybody who was you know who kind of lend themselves to to parody or?
5: Yeah, I always had a soft spot for Guy That. I, I, I And I say that endearingly, because I, I do think he is a character, if you look at him, because he's very tall, he's got, you know, that that very distinctive hair and the horn and glasses, and a very thick uh, Flemish accent. So even when he's trying to be very angry and make, you know, a self-righteous speech in Parliament, it always doesn't land, I think, as angry as he means it to, mm. because of that accent. The, prob-
2: the problem of humiliation and punishment is because of the mess in the Tory party. There is the humiliation of the British people yeah, sitting in your group. They are not even there.
5: At the same time, I find him uh, very endearing because he's constant. He's, you know, an unapologetically pro-European, uh, has this ideal version of Europe. But at the same time, he acknowledges that, you know, there's, yeah, OK, fine. We've got a lot of things we need to sort out and we need to fix. His nickname is The Hoff, which I think <laughs> is. is quite funny as well. He's very much what you see is what you get I think as well in just like Junker.
1: Right, it's un, kind of unfiltered. Mm-hmm. Paul is there anybody in the in the kind of current cast of characters who gives you um you know good good material for for declassified or do you have to go kind of further afield?
6: You uh, you do tend to have to go further afield. That's the the kind of the you know if if I'm if I'm struggling, you know, pushing up against deadline and I'm and I'm struggling, you don't immediately go to uh to the current commission for <laughs> for laughs. I mean, you know, there's not a lot there. My kind of favourite, which is very much not the right word, kind of character from the last few years was Antonio Tajani, who managed to go from kind of Berlusconi spokesman, I think he was, to commissioner, to president of the parliament. And while seeming to not really want to do any work in any of those roles, (laughs) um, there, (laughs) there there, there was some moments when he was a commissioner. I think it was tourism where there were some great photos of him. I think he was the one guy left behind in summer and he's holding like rubber inflatables <laughs> telling people to be safe, which was quite, that was quite funny. You know, please don't, you know, don't drown whilst, uh, you know, by having a, a substandard inflatable in the swimming pool. Yeah. But then also it was 2000, I think it was like 17. He wrote a letter to Yonker saying, please do not send the parliament any work yeah. until early September. And the letter was dated July 13th. <laughs> Um, so that, I think, tells you quite a lot about the EU and quite a lot about
3: Tajani.
1: Yeah, that was it. And uh, just um, for uh, Antonio Tajani or any of his lawyers who may be listening, he may have seemed like he wasn't doing any work, but I'm sure behind the scenes, constant, constant. Oh, yeah,
2: work. very hardworking. Yeah. Yes, I should make that
1: very clear. Yeah, very, very hardworking guy.
2: Tajani so had, this, had this other char- characteristic of w- when he was parliament president. So a lot of photos being taken of him. He had this knack of being photographed at that exact moment when there was absolutely nothing in his head. He looked absolutely gormless in every single every single photo that was taken of him. And for a while, it was a sport just just taking photos of him and just sticking them on Twitter with the with the hashtag Tayani Blanks, because he was just looking into into space. Yeah, that was a bit of a nice bit of sport for, for for a while.
1: Yeah, but that that idea of playing into the idea of the EU, like the Parliament saying, "Don't bother us," it's the summer. Do any of you ever feel or draw back from humour thinking that's a stereotype that could play into kind of Eurosceptic narrative or reinforce a vision of the EU, which I'm not comfortable with and don't want to reinforce? Or do you just have to kind of leave that behind, Kelly?
5: uh, of course, I, I think there's a line. I am very much a uh, European. Um, one of the reasons why I wrote the Brexit rap was out of my own frustration, my way to vent out frustration for what I think is a divorce that never should have happened in the first place. Hence the idea of the ex-wife. We go back to the table. Divorce negotiations. You think you can play me against my own nations? Want to take advantage of my industries while keeping hold of your fisheries? You want economic access without freedom of movement? This is not a... So I, I do think there's a line. I do think there is a danger, especially with improvised theater, which is what I do, where you do not have a script. Therefore, it's not filtered. It all happens in the moment. But the good thing also about working with professionals uh, and my cast is all professional improvisers, is that if something is said that would go over a line, uh, the rest of us, because we're always a team, we can rephrase, we can damp it down, we can clarify and therefore kind of save it as it were. Mm. I, I also don't want this to be like blind EU propaganda either. I don't want us to be um, just, you know, singing the EU's praises either. I want us to be, you know. Uh, dancing around the line and poking, uh, poking fun.
1: Mm. Um, I wanted to talk just finally about feedback that you might have had. I don't know if any of the people that you have made fun of or, or have ever kind of given you feedback about what you're doing or what kind of feedback you get from the bubble, if you like. Paul, I know you occasionally get some um, fan mail. But does this go, go with the territory? Do you need a bit of a thick skin to do this stuff?
6: Yeah, you do. Almost exclusively, all the feedback I get is overwhelmingly negative <laughs> and, and extraordinarily personal. Um, I think, although a lot of that does actually, it's much worse, for example, when you broaden things out. I did a piece uh, about Trump, kind of saying how much I was going to miss him a few weeks ago, in which I listed a few nicknames for him. And I got a, lo- a lot of kind of far right American abuse. It, there's much less of it comes to me from people within the bubble. I don't get any feedback from people I've written about almost almost never. The closest we came was last year when Madonna uh, <laughs> became involved. Um, Do you want to
1: explain how Madonna I, became I, involved? Indeed,
6: I, I, I decided that there was a like a pledging conference, a telephone that Ursula von der Leyen held in which countries could say how much money they were going to give to help fight the pandemic. And some countries gave lots and some countries gave nothing. And Madonna gave a million dollars.
5: I just got the message that Madonna has announced a contribution of $1 million to the coronavirus global. So
6: I wrote that um, she was now entitled to become a member of the European Union, as in a, you know, a member state.
1: Right, that there was some kind of arcane regulation that meant if you donated that much, you got to become a. I yeah.
6: said exactly that, that there's an arcane rule <laughs> that says that Madonna can now join as, in, to replace the, the United Kingdom. Um, I didn't think it could have been any more obvious that I was making a joke, but obviously not. The Well, I won't mention the name of the newspaper, but a reasonably well-respected British newspaper then picked that story up as if it was real. And um, despite me reaching out to them on numerous occasions to tell them that this was a joke, I believe it's still online. And then it was picked up again by Madonna herself, yeah. who uh, put it on her Instagram to her many, many millions of viewers with my name in it saying that I'd said... She was joining the EU.
1: Yeah, and and Madonna is, in fact, coming to the next European Council as a result, which is, you know, good for you and good for her.
6: She's staying over in my eyes yeah, Good. Bed.
1: good. Yeah. Duncan, any feedback? I wondered if people, some of the behind the scenes, you mentioned Martin Selmayer, former Secretary General of the Commission, who, who was a good, I think, target, right, had this kind of image as this kind of Stalinist iron fist at the heart of the kind of Brussels machine. Did he or anybody else? Have you ever had any kind of feedback from people saying you got me there or you didn't get me there?
2: I've rarely had any direct feedback. In terms of people like, like Selmayr, I'm very sure he followed what uh, what we were writing about on the Berlin Monster. There's was, there was an occasion when, I'm sure the people on this call know, but when notable people visit the European Commission, there's a part of the entrance called the VIP entrance. And if you're a national leader or or someone like that, then you get to come through that entrance. And there's a little VIP corner where there's a press conference, but there's a corridor between the two. And you've got a constant feed of that corridor when someone's arriving. And when Merkel arrived, I managed to capture the moment when Martin Selmayr did a full 90 degree bow to Angela Merkel. (laughs) And I captured that, wrote a silly little article about it, you know, the, you know, 90 degrees of deference or something we called it, and and then ran that story. Uh, when Cameron came to visit, I captured the moment he bowed to Cameron, there's only 17 degrees of deference. So that made a nice little little counterpart. Yeah. That's a very Brussels joke as well. Oh, it is. I mean, Euro jokes for Euro folks, unashamedly I'm, I'm so. But then when Cameron came for, um, when Merkel came for a, a second time, I was watching the, the European Commission's channel, watching down this corridor with a lens, with a camera, watching down the corridor. And Martin Selmayr was there, and he, well, before the the notables arrived, he just stepped out into the corridor, looked down the barrel of the camera, gave a massive theatrical bow, <laughs> and then got back up again and waited waited for Merkel or Cameron to arrive. So, I, yeah, he was he was watching, but we were writing and. and He's got he's got a good thick skin and he he's got a good sense of humor and 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 I'm sure he was in, engaging in kind. So yeah. but in terms of people complaining, I, I can't think of a, an occasion where anyone's actually kind of um, struck out of what we've been covering. Mm.
1: We've talked for a good long time. Is there anything anybody else, you know, anything that occurs to anyone, any any point we haven't covered that you think is worth mentioning when it comes to the EU and, and humor?
5: I think actually one maybe one good byproduct of Brexit is that there was more discourse about what the EU does uh, generally at national level throughout the EU. And so uh, Brussels, which was only heard as, uh, well, don't look at us, Brussels made us do that uh, in the national discourse. Suddenly, you know, the technicalities of what it means to be a member, what comes out of being a member, et cetera, et cetera, was not just something that was discussed uh, in the UK, but also in every other member state. Maybe I'm very optimistic, but I think that out of this unfortunate thing for the EU, maybe the fortunate thing is that people know a little more about what it is and what it does, and therefore might look a little closer at it, and also in the process, uh, poke fun at it and uh, give us some good material for the future.
2: Listen, if, if, if Limerick's about cometology can find a wider audience, I'm all for it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that could be the ultimate test, I think. (laughs) Okay, uh, we'll leave it there. Paul, Duncan and Kelly, thank you very much.
6: Thank you. Thank Thank you very much.
1: Reem and Matt are back with me briefly for some lockdown recommendations. Um, Reem, why don't you go first? What's your tip?
4: Well, this week, I really think everyone should stop what they're doing and watch the New York Times presents framing Britney Spears. Oh. Because I really think it sheds a whole new light on what we do to these pop singers and all of that tabloid culture, well, it's wonderful. Okay, thank you, Matt. What have you got? I got nothing.
3: I got nothing. really <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excuse, 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 even excuse. after we gave you time to think. I know. Yeah, I can't think of anything.
1: Okay. Um, my t- uh, to be honest I have also been struggling uh, you know it's one of these things we we've, we've so immersed sometimes in work that it's hard even to remember what you did when you switched off but I did catch up with an old Hitchcock movie recently Notorious which I would really recommend Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman I shouldn't even put it that way around because Ingrid Bergman is the total star of that film she carries it and it's just great to switch into you know another mode of filmmaking another time and forget about everything that's going on around does at the moment. So that's my tip, Uh, Notorious, uh, by Alfred Hitchcock. And we'll leave it there. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please take a moment to hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to us. That will make sure you get our episodes as soon as they're published. You can also send us feedback directly to our email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. Thanks for some very thoughtful recent contributions. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to our newest podcast, Westminster Insider, hosted by Jack Blanchard. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you
3: for listening.